I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So today we have Crystal Arnett with us. She's a fabulous actress. You may have seen her in the House of Von Macrame at the Bushwick Star or down at the Flea Theater, where she's been a company member since 2010. Crystal, welcome. Hello. We are so happy to have you with us today. And I also heard that you do some singing, too. I do, actually. <laughs> what bands do you sing with? Um, well, I have this uh, folk chamber collective, as I like to call it. Um, it's basically my um, simple folk songs. And then I have a r roster of, of musicians I, I uh, perform with and they bring a, a lot of new elements to the songs and we sort of become very big or very small depending. But uh, when it's at its largest, we've got guitar, cello, mandolin, uh, violin, electric guitar, drums. It's just sort wow. of this, this, yeah, a, a collective is a good way to put it. So it's really cool. I front that band, yeah. So today we have Crystal here because she's playing a very special role in the play Certifiable that's running right now in the New York International Fringe Festival. Crystal, you're playing a sommelier in this play, isn't that right? It is. That is correct. So tell me, I'm so interested, how much did you know about wine before you started working on this play? Well, I actually have a pretty good wine background. Um, I, like a lot of actors, have worked in restaurants over the years. <laughs> um, I actually worked at Veritas NYC. Uh, for a few months when they reopened in 2011. Um, did you work with Ruben? I did work with oh, Ruben. Cool. Hey, I Ruben, did. are you listening? I know. Crystal, we got Crystal Arnett here. What's up? <laughs> Hi, Ruben. <laughs> I, I really um, I really loved working there because of the wine, because of the incredible wine program that Ruben had. And uh, Orr and Alex, who are his assistant psalms, like we just, you know, I had never had wine of that caliber. Um, after that, I actually moved over to Bocoria and um, worked on, you know, discovering an entire world of Spanish wine that I had never uh, known before. Yeah, and they have and some good stuff over there. They mm -hmm. do. And I've, um, I've still, um, I'm no longer working in restaurants now, but I'm, I'm still sort of partial to Spanish wine. Now, so Bocoria got under my skin a little, <laughs> a little bit on that way. What's your favorite Spanish wine region? Um, Priera. Oh, lovely. Yeah, so like the big red wines. Yeah, I like the big. I'm I'm definitely a fan of the uh, the tough those tough grapes. They've got to fight <laughs> to survive there. 
Love it. That is so cool. So you've got some wine shops. So you're little, perfect. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely enjoyed, you know, when I got the role, I remember getting Molly on the phone and saying, oh, by the way, I, I know, I do know wine a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I can do this. So what did you do to prepare for the role? Did you do anything extra special? Um, did you study or drink a lot more? Um, really, uh, one of the things about the the play is that, you know, she's learning Mm-hmm. Um, about becoming in the play, she's both before and after becoming a psalm, and uh, so I, I definitely, you know, looked into what it takes, the long process and the training, and remembering, you know, other, um, uh, you know, psalms and people I've worked with who were training as well, and kind of touching base with them, um, and, and and yeah, drinking quite a lot of wine is about. <laughs> It's true. It sort of turned into what we do after rehearsal, just because. Except it was research. For the no, absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> okay, what were some of the coolest things that you've learned about wine since you started working with this script? Well, it's even more than just wine itself. Um, it's sort of the the passion that someone who is devoted to wine has, and I, and in in the amount the amount of drive it takes to want to do this um, as your job. And Pam is in love with wine. And I love wine personally because it's the most incredible industry devoted to pleasure. And Pam is the character that you play. Pam is the character I play. So Pam's in love with wine in the play. Pam's in love with wine. And she's, you know, I mean, it's this arduous process that is just solely for pleasure, you know? And that's amazing. It's something I've always loved about wine uh, personally. And, you know, the she also gets to open up Greg about wine, which is really fun. And that that aspect of being a psalm, of getting to expand the minds of your friends or your customers uh, is the real joy and the joy I've always found myself and the, definitely the joy that Pam finds. So, um, but some of the cooler things is just really learning about how hard it is to become certified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to become a master psalm. <laughs> The amount of work that goes into it and the amount of like memorizing and the testing and the, you know, we do a little of that in the play. We some, some studied and, you know, here I am trying to remember my lines and I'm messing up and switching grape varietals around (laughs) and I'm like, I'm getting this wrong. I'm going to fail my test. (laughs) I think a lot of us have gone through that in real life (laughs) that are listening. Okay. So this play was written by Molly Rydzel, who herself is a lovely sommelier. And I've heard her call this a sommelier romantic comedy or a som rom com. <laughs> it's a funny new genre of play. Did you get any som coaching from her during rehearsals? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I guess that was nice is that because I did come in with a background in wine service and as a, um, I, I knew how to pour the wine and hold the glasses and and look like I knew what I was doing in that regard. But you know, definitely in terms of specificity of of how to pronounce everything, of course. And um, and just, you know, actually just being around Molly is enough because the pride she takes in what she does and the pride she takes in her own wine program is, you know, is inspiring. And I sort of like assimilate that with Pam's, you know, joy. And there's a really fun scene where 
know, I'm celebrating selling three bottles of an 83 Romanet Conti and, and, and Greg <laughs> does no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, it's Pinot Noir, come on. And you're like, this is the greatest thing that's happened this all is, month. Have you any idea what it means to have sold three bottles of this? No, you don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now there's another cool thing about this play. Your character, Pam, she's crazy, isn't she? She is, yes. Pam is, uh, she's schizophrenic. Um, I think of Pam as a severe schizophrenic who does really well on her meds. All right. Um, she's, you know, for most of the play, she's really great. Um, and I think what's really lovely about the play is that we are dealing with mental illness in a, in a truthful way. You know, she's not a cliche. She's not always riding on some high or low. Uh, she's been dealing with her illness for a long time. Um, and it's scary actually at times and getting into her head in that regard, sometimes it's, it's been very scary for me. Um, and, and, you know, it's fun as an actress to have these like uninhibited moments. But when I really think about what it must be like to, you know, um, suffer from or deal with or live with an illness like that, it's, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot to think about, but what's, what's lovely is that she is managing it for the times when she isn't. <laughs> we, we have some fun. <laughs> so can you give us a preview? What kinds of wines are the characters drinking in the play? Well, we drink that excellent Pinot Noir, for sure. I save a little bit of this <laughs> Romanet for a scene. And um, uh, we're drinking <laughs> the character of Marianne, who's the third part of the, the love triangle. Um, she's a dry white wine lady, and she's she's sort of... <laughs> she's sort of like a... The client that you you always have, she like gets ice with her white, and you know won't, well, you know. Oh no, we don't have a Pinot Grigio. I'll just have a dry white wine. I'll bring you a Sancerre. <laughs> um, so we know that uh, we're drinking um, Syrah for sure. I think that I'm just some big, juicy, mouthy, bold. It's kind of Pam. <laughs> cool she's kind of she's big mouthy juicy and bold that's she drinks wine like she is you are what you drink I right you are <laughs> okay and now here's what we all really want to know if you could drink any wine after opening night what would it be oh my goodness um you know uh i was in gosh i feel like such a i'm gonna forget the name of it i was in um I was in San Juan Island with uh, one of the co-founders of Amazon, actually, last year, friend of the family. And he had a bottle of, of Cabernet Sauvignon from 1995. What was it called? I'm going to forget. It was one of those you know, 25 bottles ever made, and he just had it out on a Tuesday night. For Do you remember what the bottle looked like? Was it black? It was black, and it had a bird on it. And I, I think Screaming Eagle? Is that what Maybe it was? Screaming Eagle. Probably. Very, yeah, very. that sounds right. And it was just stunning and simple and wonderful and i've i've been thinking about it ever since i don't know if i'll be able to have a bottle of that i think i'm going to end up having is some bubbles and some wonderful wonderful bubbles and um probably i'm lucky like a excellent cavort and that'll make me happy awesome well that those bubbles and that diversion meter will be well deserved so good luck to you uh break a leg i mean well it's i'm not superstitious <laughs> And there you have it, certifiable, the story of a crazy sommelier, a torrid love triangle, and the wine that they drank, playing during August 2013 at the New York International Fringe Festival.
Thanks, Crystal. Thank you. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand Daniel Jonas on the show. Nice to see you, sir. Great to see you, Levy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's start with the nudist colony. I mean, what happened? <laughs> what was going on there? What better way to get introduced <laughs> to the, uh, the service industry, huh? Uh, where'd you dig up that little bit of information? <laughs> I don't know. Well, you know, uh, I was living in France at the time. This was 1974, 75. I was uh, dating a young French woman. And uh, didn't want to come back to the States. So she had a friend who was uh, uh, the chef in the nudist colony. This is in Provence, a small village called Bédouin, right at the foot of the Mont Ventoux. And uh, she was offered the summer job and said, well, you want to have a job also? I said, of course, I'd love to work. Uh, what kind of a restaurant is it? And she said, well, it is a con naturiste. Well, a con naturiste is a nudist colony. And uh, we were in the kitchen helping out peeling potatoes and doing whatever needed to be done. Then Trying not to get burned. I, I, <laughs> I could wear an apron there. Uh, but then I was uh, let out of the kitchen and I was the waiter. So this was uh, really my first, uh, my first job in the restaurant business uh, as a waiter in a nudist colony, yes. Uh, then I graduated to uh, managing the bar uh, the second year. And then I uh, just moved on to bigger and better things. <laughs> Don't but, know what to say. This know. is how you like to start your, your interviews. No, it's cool. Digging up the no, dirt no, from no, the past. Come on, man. <laughs> no, it's cool. I'm I flattered mean, to be here. But... Natural wine is very popular now. Yeah, you know? exactly. Unnatural is uh, hey, you're I, ahead of your time. I was in the way 70s. ahead of the trend, exactly. So you... Uh, you you were started to learn about wine uh, in, in this time? Era. Well, I started to learn about um, uh, good living yeah. and uh, the the table, uh, the art of the table, if you like, but not even much more than that. It was about the, the culture of the table. And uh, this is a, a region of France that is just exploding with beautiful produce and, uh, and, and vineyards also. And so, um, with this family I was, I was living with, we'd go to the markets, we'd go to the markets, uh, on the weekends. And in the winter, there was the truffle market of Capontra. And, uh, 
there were all these family family dinners every weekend or every night of the week for that matter and uh, it was just a, it was a new experience for me uh, growing up we would eat at the dinner table we weren't served tv dinners and my mother was a great cook and so uh, dining was always an important part of the family uh, experience and and uh, dinner together was always important but this was different this was another dimension where members of the family and the farmers and the winemaker a friend of the village would bring his wine over and take me into the vineyard and show me and we'd go to the market and i'd see these like amazing produce and fish and uh, vegetables melons and the melon from the region are extraordinary are we talking about the news colony again no 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 no, no. oh okay levy you you're (laughs) You you said melons. Yes. Uh, How about apricots? Apricots. (laughs) Uh, Cherries. Cherries. It was great. Um, So this just opened my eyes to a world that I hadn't really known. You know, farmer's markets weren't really a big thing in the mid to late 70s. Um, in the United States. In the United States. So, so we didn't didn't get uh, that kind of exposure. And and I just fell in love with the culture. And... um, cooking together, eating together, spending good times together, drinking wine together. And, uh, of course, I was just at the age where I was starting to enjoy drinking wine, 18. Well, maybe I started a little bit earlier. My first experiences were a little bit before that, but not with this kind of wine, really good, robust wine from the Rhone Valley. Uh, Not so much Chateauneuf or the villages, Gigondas maybe, but it was mostly Côte de Rhone, Vendée Pays, Côte de Ventoux, uh, these, these types of wines. Which is an area that, you know, you've gone back as an importer and worked with, you know, the Rhone. And oh, I love not, the Rhone. Not far from kind of places that are real keystones for you. Well, people connect me to Burgundy uh, because of uh, my work at Montrachet and the La Palais Festival. But I, I did have my first experiences, uh, great experiences with wine in the Rhone Valley. And uh, I love the wine to the Rhone, southern, northern you know, I just uh, I love that that uh, the, the sunshine that you find in these wines. So eventually, you make your way back to New York, and and what happens? Well, you know, I I was just starting my college education, so when I finished, I had to decide what I wanted to do. Um, from this experience, I learned to speak fluent French. Uh, there were times when I wouldn't speak English for months on end. Uh, so when I came back to the States, I wanted to do something using this language, this new skill. Um, I landed a job with a cruise company in the reservations room in the back of the building with no sunshine and speaking English all day to to people who wanted to go on this cruise. Um, and I was, I was bored. I wasn't making money. And I really was not using my French. Um, so I wasn't making enough money. A friend offered me a job in a restaurant, just moonlighting, make, making a little extra money as a, a busboy, starting as a busboy. Um, I guess my experience in the news colony didn't really qualify me for a uh, waiter's position just yet. Uh, so I, I, I fell in love with the restaurant business. It was just the, uh, the teamwork, the camaraderie, uh, the uh, adrenaline that you get from working in a restaurant. And I uh, got to know the chef or the cook. It was a place on the far west side of Manhattan called the Landmark Tavern, an old pub and serving shepherd's pie and beer. So we're not at the fine dining stage of my career yet. That sounds really popular right now. <laughs> like, but uh, Ye old pub serving shepherd's pie and beer could yeah, be a really popular it, model right now. <laughs> it was great. And, you know, the funny thing is they would serve these really, you know, 
very simple foods, but they had a pastry chef. And the pastry chef was very good. And I ended up spending extra time after my shift working with him, learning how to make, uh, uh, you know, custards and, and puff pastry and all kinds of uh, different things that would go into the desserts, putting the desserts together. And it was through him that I, uh, I got connected to uh, cooking schools, little cooking schools in New York and wine schools. There's John Sheldon, who's still uh, working the market, I believe, I had a wine class. Um, John Clancy was a pastry chef. And we're, I'm dating myself. This is the late 70s. And um, I ended up uh, going to a restaurant uh, in Connecticut that Guy Savoie was opening. Oh, oh, oh. Now, Guy Savoie at the time was a two-star Michelin chef, and it was pretty big news that he was coming to New York. He was one of the first French chefs who was going to kind of, uh, you know, throw his anchor onto the American market and uh, set up shop. And uh, I went there to dine, and I was just thrilled to be able to use my French in the dining room, and Guy was there, and I asked him if I could spend uh, a little time doing a stage in his kitchen in Paris. Wow, and, that's pretty cool that you just, like, laid it out like that. Uh, you know, I just, I, I was connection. courageous. Yeah. I, I just, I knew my French was so good that I could make a connection with him. And I just felt confident, and I was just so driven and impassioned, just passionate about this this newfound love, food, and uh, eventually wine, that I said, what the hell, I'll just ask him. And I wasn't really attached to any work or, or, or a relationship. And so he said, sure, come on over. And I go over there, and sure enough, uh, Tom Valenti's in the kitchen uh, peeling carrots and doing a stage. And I ended up running into Alfred Portali, who was... Um, doing a stage at the time at Michel Gerard. And so you had this whole like culture, this whole like group of Americans who were over there getting, uh, getting some experience and, uh, and uh, learning. And um, that was it. There was no turning back after that. I fell in love with it. I spent some time with Guy Savoie. I spent uh, six months in the Southwest of France uh, at a, at a, in the Lande region, which is really, all you do, all you eat, all you cook are ducks, <laughs> all parts of the duck, uh, stuffed duck's neck, duck confit, magret de canard, foie gras, uh, duck hearts. I mean, it was just fantastic what we would do. Um, and uh, I spent some time on a foie gras farm learning, learning how to you know, feed the ducks. Um, it's really interesting. You know, they used to love it. At dining time, they would just line up. The, du the ducks would. The ducks. So because uh, sometimes you hear about the things with the foie gras bands and stuff, but your experience was, you know, my experience was totally different. These these um, these ducks came running <laughs> when it was feeding time, um, and uh, so it was the whole thing. And then on days off, I would go off to the vineyards of Sauternes or Bordeaux and and visit and. Um, do tastings and i just fell in love with the countryside and the culture and i was just soaking it up and but eventually i mean how long was that well that was uh, a whole year that was probably 1981 1980 to 1982 the end of it was 1982 to uh the end of 1983 okay yeah. so because you must have come back and work at plaza athenae well after that. no because that didn't open i came back and then what what do i do do i want to uh go into the kitchen I thought at this time I really wanted to be a chef. I had been spending a year in France cooking, doing these stages. 
and um, I didn't I, I didn't want to pull the trigger yet. I didn't want yeah. to make that commitment. So I ended up working at Acker Merrill over on, uh, at the time they were on Broadway and I don't know, maybe 80th Street. They've moved over to 72nd Street. Now. So I, I worked there uh, just helping out in the evening. And I was taken under the wing of a, of a, a guy there, Jerry Jacobson. I don't know if you know Jerry. Does the name mean never, anything to never you? Never met him. So, well, he, he's passed away. But uh, he was the original Burgundy geek. This guy took me under his wing, and they were the only shop in New York that had René Angel, Dr. George Munieret, um, uh, just like extraordinary wines, small grower wines. Uh, of course, Christophe Rumier. And, um, well, it wasn't Christophe at the time. It was his father. Uh, and he took me on a trip to Burgundy. And I had already, through my visits to the vineyards and my interest in the Rhone Valley and my experience with wine, I had uh, this, this budding interest. And uh, Jerry took me to Burgundy, and this is what really did it. Going into the cellars of, and meeting Dr. George Munieret and meeting uh, René Angel and you know, some of the mythic figures of Burgundy who have uh, you know, created the, uh, the reputation of Burgundy today was an experience that I will never forget. I, I'll never forget going in and uh, Dr. Munieret, after the tasting, handing me a bottle of 1955 Clos Vougeot as a gift. Thank you for coming. And going to uh, Angel and a magnum of Clos Vougeot 64. You know, going out and just, wow, that was nice. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, it, it was it, it wasn't just the the wine. It was again the the friendship and the uh, communication, the the sharing, that really struck me and, and caused me to fall in love with uh, well with Burgundy. But uh, you find this kind of generosity in many vineyards of France and Italy and the world. So it was just um, something that uh, I wanted to pursue. So coming back to the United States. It's like, okay, uh, I love wine. I'd spent a year cooking. I thought I wanted to cook. There was this uh, ad in the New York Times uh, for the Plaza Tenet. It was opening up, uh, fine dining, and I wanted, to, I wanted to apply for the position. When I sat down for the interview with Danielle Boulou, who was the executive chef, um, and Max Bernard, um, Park Avenue Bistro, I think uh, he, they said, well, what are you applying for? The dining room or the kitchen? And I sort of hesitated and wasn't sure. And then I just thought, well, the dining room. And they hired me on the spot. And it was uh, grueling. It was uh, six double shifts in a row. Then you get, uh, no, seven, seven double shifts in a row, seven. Then you get two days off. Then you'd start the cycle again, seven doubles. And a few months earlier, I had met my uh, my future wife, and this was a this was a, a program that I just couldn't maintain. <laughs> I was exhausted. I didn't get to see her. I loved the business, but I also wanted a life, and so I stayed there. I stayed there about six months. Uh, oddly enough, in the dining room was uh, Drew Nieperin. He was working there. So we're talking the end of uh, 1984 when Drew was getting ready to open his restaurant. And uh, we hit it off. I mean, how can you not hit it off with Drew? I mean, he's just uh, what, just the greatest guy. And it's funny. 
Yeah, mm. well, brings a lot of good vibe. He's just, you know, you feel comfortable with him. Mm-hmm. And um, in talking to him about the restaurant he wanted to open, I said, this is really what I'm interested in. And it was very much uh, the kind of experience I had, I had in France with... Um, you know, more relaxed atmosphere. It wasn't fine. It wasn't uh, pretentious. It wasn't stiff. It was his idea was to do good food in a convivial, casual uh, environment. So, um, so I went downtown, and this was the beginning of uh, Tribeca and, and the whole dining scene downtown, which up till then was the Odeon, which had already been open for just a few years. So. Um, yeah, that was that was a, a fantastic era. You know, that was the beginning of uh, really casual dining, but with a real serious focus on 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 quality products, good food, good good preparation, and and the beginning of the wine movement in New York. So, uh, in terms of sommeliers, how many sommeliers well, were there around then? I don't. There weren't any. There was yeah. Roger Dagorn. Yeah. There was uh, well, Kevin Israeli at Windows on the World was running the program. He wasn't working the floors of sommelier. It's a big uh, operation there, but there were people who came out of there. And, um, you know, sommelier, that wasn't really a profession that anybody aspired to. There weren't that many. And the term sommelier applied to the guy wearing the tuxedo and the silver cup around his neck in the Midtown re- restaurant. So, um, but, th- but that was, you know, that was a time when people would come into the restaurant and they'd still ask for a glass of Chablis, meaning just a white wine. But they usually start with a martini. I mean, we're still talking about the uh, the cocktail era. So um, so it was interesting to see that evolve over time. Excuse me. And David Boulay was the chef as you guys started. Well, David Boulay was, was, was there. And, um, you know, it, it was... Uh, a culinary revolution, uh, the kind of food he was doing, uh, just really fine food. He's such a great chef. Um, his restaurants, uh, you know, one after another, when he opened Boulay, that was thriving for years and years, and he's still down in Tribeca. Uh, the scene has changed in Tribeca. I don't think there's uh, quite the, you know, the, the, the energy that you had back in that period. Uh, but there's great food all over the city, and Tribeca is still a place that I call home. That's where I have my uh, my office. Yeah, your office is down there. Yeah, yeah, I love the I love the neighborhood. But it's on that edge of like Chinatown. Tribeca is still kind of bustling in a way. Yeah, and, well, it's know. Canal Street, West yeah. Broadway, and Soho, Chinatown, Tribeca, and and th- there's a lot going on all over. And when you get into Nolita, and you know, dining scene in New York is just fantastic. It's probably the greatest in the world. Um. But what was what was exciting for me down there was um, the commitment and the free reign that Drew allowed me to have to really uh, pursue my passion and to uh, develop a wine program that, uh, you know, the name of the restaurant, Morache, we were going to focus on Burgundy, but we did have wines from all over the world. We had uh, the great classics of Bordeaux from the 61s and 59s and 45s. And it was like a whole page of these, these, these wines. The Rhone Valley was super important. Uh, and at the time, it was easy. I had all this Raymond Trollat and Jantaz and... You know some of the uh, the small growers, the old time small growers. Just that like I see today. on your Instagram feed today, actually, <laughs> same same people. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah. 
Well, it's true though. You still drink some wine. Oh, I still. Well, they're hard to get. They're now. harder to get now. They're yeah, hard to yeah. get, and you know, you always have the storage issue. How have they been kept? How often they've been traded around? And what are you paying for them? Some of these are outsized prices for. You know, they they weren't intended to be fancy wines. They were intended to be you know great, rustic, soulful wines, and they were never expensive. And that was partly, uh, you know, a result of the economy in which they were living and operating and producing. And often these guys who are world famous today uh, had to grow apricots and cherries and, you know, polyculture just to survive. So it's interesting to watch how that's uh, evolved over the years. So when I see those wines and I, you know, okay, yeah, let's open a bottle of uh, Jantaz uh, Corotti. You don't do it so casually anymore. It's a special occasion. And they're great wines. And you introduced people to a lot of those wines, uh, especially from, from Burgundy uh, at the list of Monash. I mean, what were the early days like uh, developing the program there? I mean, you started as a waiter, and, and Drew gave you the, the wine program. How did that conversation happen, and, and what was it like for you? Well, you know, we with David Boulay got three stars in the New York Times. I think it was three or four weeks after we opened the doors. So immediately... This was uh, this this restaurant was flooded, and it was more than Drew could handle on his own. Just uh, taking reservations, running the wine program, all the management involved in a, a moderate but well fairly small restaurant. But um, I stepped forward and said, "Well, let me let me uh, put away the wine." I wasn't doing the ordering just yet, but I was putting it away. I was stocking it. And um, I, you know, I still remember climbing up on the bar and dusting the bottles and arranging them and putting them in the wine cellar. And you know, there were no, <laughs> there were no computers, so I, I, I don't know how we did. I guess we typed it up and made photocopies for the wine list. Um, so it was the management of the cellar I did. And then gradually, I, I took over, and expanded the list and um, traveled more to Burgundy and went back to France because. I missed going to France. It was important for me to get back to, to France and uh, get in touch with the, the country and stay in, in, in touch with my language that I had uh, mastered. Um, and that experience of being able to go back to France two, three times a year uh, led me to start importing wine. And the, the object there was really to distinguish the wine list and import some of these country wines that hadn't been represented in the United States. Um, because we already had the great Grand Cru of Burgundy and the great Bordeaux and the classic wines, and a lot of American wines as well. But I was always passionate about these little, like, uh, appellations. Uh, Saint-Pourcent was one of the first wines I imported. Uh, Gaillac from Robert Plageol. Nobody had wine. heard of it. You know, Landelel uh, 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 and uh, Mosaic Nature, this sparkling wine from the Mosaic grape. Yeah, that, really by the way, Thomas Keller had Raquel at the time, and he was pouring Mosaic Nature by the glass. Wow, he that's fell amazing. in love with it. And um, Willie Bramsky up at Crossroads was carrying these little selections that I had. There was. Uh, there was the Saint-Pourcent, there was the Gaillac, there was a Macon, so that's more classic. But it was a Macon from a good grower. And at the time, Maconet wines were, you know, just, well, just overproduced uh, Chardonnay. Not a lot of distinction. 
but I was uh, importing Andre Bonhomme, who was making really wonderful wine. At the time, it was Macon Vire. Uh, today, it's very classé. And so, um, and I had a, I had a great little vendapay from uh, the Roussillon, from a cave cooperative, but it was spectacular. And so, these are the kinds of wines that I was really passionate about. Of course, the Bon Mar from Rumier and so on. But at the time, I was tasting that every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was no allocation on, on Ramonet and Rumier and, and these extraordinary burgundies because nobody really knew about them. So we could buy them. Uh, but the fun, the excitement for me was to like discover these little growers and, and bring them in. So the, the, the list was peppered with some of these little gems that were extraordinary value. I mean, if you can imagine what they would cost and uh, on the wine list, twenty, you know, twenty-two dollars, and you know, so people loved it. Um, uh, but you know, so so that was the beginning of the uh, the import company, and it just gradually grew organically from there. So, I mean, there have been a lot of changes in the import market in New York. Uh, what was it like for you when you first started importing your own wine? Well, you know, um, I really wanted to distinguish the wine list at Montrachet by bringing in some of these small producers like, like, like the Plageau and the Saint-Pourcent that I talked about. And um, <clears throat> that, that business just grew. And it was really interesting. It was fun to do. And there were a lot of big importers. And then there were some, some, uh, some of the guys who were the trailblazers like Kermit Lynch and Neil Rosenthal and uh, Joe Dresner. And these guys were just, and Eric Sol. You know, they were, they were already doing it, but hadn't been doing it that long. And so I was kind of like an upstart kid doing it. But my whole motivation for doing it at the time was to do something special for the restaurant and introduce the customers to these off, off the beaten path wines. But that business gradually grew. And it grew to the point where I didn't want to leave the restaurant business. I loved it. I loved the communication with the clients and being able to share these stories. So <clears throat> I, um, I, it grew to the point where I needed help with the uh, distribution. I couldn't manage that. And, uh, it, you know, the business went through a couple of uh, transformations. But uh, I've been working with Michael Skernick since uh, 2005. I actually started with him earlier, and then we split paths, and we're back together, happily remarried. And uh, it's fantastic. The business has grown. We, you know, we're representing some of the greatest states of Burgundy, like Lafont, Rouleau, and Pierre-Yves-Colin, and other regions of France also, the Loire Valley with Philippe Allier, and La Grange des Pères in the southwest, and the Languedoc, and, you know, I, all over France. Um, and uh, Skernick is a, a great company. He's been around since, I think, 86 or 87. Something like that, yeah. And, uh, you know, really well established and still extremely motivated. You know, when I talk to Michael or Harmon, um, that they're not just sitting back, you know, they are really looking for new product, exciting product. And uh, it's a a good partnership. I love working with them. Uh, But during this time, I also wanted to uh, develop the Burgundy program. Uh, because I saw that customers would come in who are used to ordering Bordeaux and uh, the great growths of Bordeaux and really weren't that familiar. And some of the greatest collectors today really cut their teeth at, in, in Morachet and uh, discovered these wines. Some of the guys who you know, have these uh, huge collections of Burgundy. And, um, you know, I started, uh, I brought over... Uh, Rumier's first visit to the United States was for a wine dinner we did over there in, uh, uh, let's see, what year was that? 92, I believe. 
and uh, Jean-Pierre Desmet from Domaine de Lorlo, Patrick B., Jacques Sace. And, uh, well, Jacques had been here before. He'd traveled a little bit. But a lot of these guys had come over for the first time to do a wine dinner with us at Montrachet. And it was just fun because they weren't superstars yet. They were all starting. You're talking about, you know, the late 80s when a lot of these guys uh, were just taking over their domain. 82, from their 83, 85, right, from their the previous generation. And so they didn't have to deal with like, like the, the rush of people wanting to get at their bottles. It's almost like, yeah, we make wine. Uh, but they were super like friendly group. Uh, they really knew how to have a good time. They still do today. They're still my, my dear friends. And uh, when they come over for La Polay or travel or whatever, it's the same spirit. They haven't changed. It's still, let's get together. Let's spend some time. Let's have some fun. Let's go listen to some music. Let's go on a bike ride. You know, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's the spirit of Burgundy is, is, uh, is really what, what you find in the glass. You know, it's that kind of joy. So, uh, so that was, you know, that, that was a great time. And eventually that did move into your, your idea to start a La Palais here, modeled after the La Palais in Merceau. And, and how did that come along and what were the first ones like? Well, I'm not sure what year. Dominique Lafont invited me to the Palais de Merceau. And that must have been 96 or, or yeah, right around then. Um because his dad was kind of influential in starting it. I think. it well, it was his great-grandfather, actually, I who see. started it in 1923. Um, yeah, the Polais was was never a traditional fest, uh, festival or celebration. Uh, a Polais is an end-of-harvest celebration that each domain in Burgundy does on their own. Uh, but the but Jules Lafont, uh, Dominique's great-grandfather, uh, Thought a little further, you know, back in the 20s, late 20s and 30s, uh, times weren't quite so good in Burgundy, and they needed to promote. This was the beginning of the, the Confrérie Chevalier de Tastevin as a way of promoting Burgundy and communicating Burgundy. And so Jules Lafont uh, decided to take the Polais from the domain and embrace other domains and celebrate together. So the whole village of Merceau uh, 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 created their own Polais, and the Polais de Merceau became one of the days of celebration at the end of harvest, well, harvest back then was a little bit later, but still it's the third Monday, the third weekend of, of November. Um, so it became uh, attached to that weekend of celebrating Burgundy. And um, attending the Palais de Merceau with Dominique was, you know, one, another one of these experiences where you have 700 people in a room sitting at long tables, all getting up, and bringing wines, they're bringing wines from their cellars, a couple of cases of wine from the cellars, treasures, wines from the 70s and 60s. And uh, this is before we knew about Primox, by the way. <laughs> there was no Primox in, uh, in these old, old white burgundies from Ramonet and Lafon. And uh, well, Ramonet is Chassagne, excuse me for mentioning, but you know, you might find a bottle or two of, Chassagne, of a neighboring village uh, up here in the room. But it was, it was that convivial spirit of sharing the bottles in the room that, again, really moved me. And we'd already done a couple of individual dinners at Morrishay, but it was this larger celebration. And then, you know, in, uh, 
uh, after, after several years of doing wine dinners at Montrachet, I'd asked Dominique and Jacques Sace and Jean-Pierre, the, the gang, to come back to New York. And by this time, they had become quite famous and were solicited all over the world. And we're traveling and they, they, don't, you know, they don't have a big team at, at their estates. Um, so they can't travel that much. They say, well, you know, Daniel, uh, maybe we need to do something a little bit bigger. So it was a collaboration with, with these, this core group where we said, well, why don't we do something that's a little bigger, multiple, several domains, multiple events, not just a wine dinner. And that's where in 2000, uh, they came over, plus Aubert de Vilaine from Romani Conti. And about, I think we had about 12 domains overall who came. And uh, of course, we had done all these previous wine dinners at Montrachet. But this time I said, well, we're going to do a bigger event. I've been friends with Daniel Boulou since the days at the Plaza Athenee, Le Régence. And I asked Daniel if he wanted to cook alongside the chef uh, at Montrachet and uh, for these Burgundy growers. And he said, yes. And, you know, after that one time in 2000, Daniel has not missed a Polet. He's been at every Polet. This is before I was working with him. And ever since I started working with him in 2005. Uh, so the, the food, the culinary aspect of it is... It's super important. I don't believe in great wine without equally great food. Uh, the dining experience has to be part of it. And so, okay, you've got these great winemakers, but if you don't have a, 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 an adequate, a great meal to go alongside, then it, it diminishes the experience, I think. The food has been very good. I remember specific dishes over the years. I remember the Cesar Ramirez's dish recently. It was spectacular. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Danielle's been cooking, but we've had other great chefs. Michel Toigreau has come over from France. Many Regis times. Marcon from France. Yeah, Michel's come over quite a few times. Thomas Keller's cooked and uh, Cesar, of course. And Daniel Hume. Daniel Hume, exactly. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really important for me to engage the, the entire uh, culinary community and uh, bring the food you know, the exposure to the food, because the people who attend La Palais, sure, they're collectors, they love burgundy, they love wine, but they love the lifestyle. They love great food, go to restaurants, uh, sommeliers, and, and the service, and so it's important to keep it at that level. So you've done 13 of them uh, now, not including the, the one in Aspen. What's it been like as the event's gotten uh, bigger and bigger, more acclaimed, and how's it how's it grown? Well, it can't... It, 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 it can't really grow in scale. Uh, it, you know, the room can only hold so many people. And I don't want to blow it up to the point where it's just like this massive event. Uh, I think it's, it's, its roots have, you know, really grown deep. Uh, the Burgundy growers continue to uh, support it. And that's most important for me to have their support first and foremost. Um, so they feel good about coming here. And going back to Burgundy and saying, well, this was a great event and there were great clientele coming and tasting our wines. So that's most important. But the, where it's changed, I've added on events. I've added uh, elements to the program that are less expensive, that are directing attention away from the rare and expensive wines. Uh, because wine appreciation, I'm getting back to my, uh, you know, my desire to discover the little small appellations of France, um, there's a lot in Burgundy that's not well known, whether it be Saint-Romain or, or even Chablis. I mean, the most under, 
valued Chardonnay in the world, some of the greatest values of, of white burgundy and Chardonnay in the world coming from Chablis. So showing Chablis or even more obscure other wines from the Yonne, you know, whether it be Saint-Brie uh, or the, the Maconnais, the Chalonnay, Beaujolais, you know, these are some of the regions of Burgundy, and I like to draw some attention to them also. A um, couple of reasons. I think it's important to recognize them, that Great Burgundy is not just Latache, as much as I love Latache. And uh, Bon Mar and Claude La Roche and the, the great, extraordinary Grand Cru of Burgundy and Premier Cru. But for daily enjoyment and drinking, these are, these are fabulous wines. I think it's important for people to either start there or at least have that as an option. A fantastic Bourgogne Rouge from Denny Bachelet, for example. Wow, is that enjoyable. Delicious. So it's important to emphasize that. And the other reason is um, I want to draw more people into it. I don't want Burgundy to become an elitist wine where people just think this is too expensive. This is too rare. I can't get it. Um, so it's important to draw a younger generation of people into discovering Burgundy. And uh, I think that... This is um, this has become maybe this is what has evolved from La Palais is uh, being able to expose Burgundy to a whole team of sommeliers who today don't get the, the exposure to Burgundy the way I did when I was growing up in the in the business because a lot of restaurants can't get the allocation and if they can it's super expensive on the list so sommeliers don't get to taste Burgundy the way that we did when we were starting. And so it's really important for me to, uh, you know, to embrace this, the 50 or 60 sommeliers who come to, the, to, to La Palais. It's their education. I call it Burgundy University at this point. You know, it's, they taste an amazing number of wines, an amazing range of wines. And it's important for them to be able to go and communicate to their, to their guests, their clients. You know, yes, I do have a, you know, a Clos Saint-Jacques on the list, but I also have this Bourgogne Rouge from Denis Bachelet that, you know, from Gervais Chambertin. Great wine to start with, get a taste of the, the style of this winemaker, get a taste of the terroir, and then graduate and move up from there. So you mentioned that you uh, started working with Daniel Ballou in 2005, which uh, kind of brought full circle a, a relationship you developed earlier in your fine dining career when he was the chef and you were uh, working at Plaza Athenae with him. So what was that experience like and how's it been over the subsequent years? You've settled in there for quite a few years now. How's it been? Well, it's been fantastic. Uh, you know, Drew Nieperant was really, as I said earlier, the guy who gave me the free reign and let me develop my passion. Um, I'd stayed in touch with Danielle over the years. We had stayed friends and um, we'd talk periodically and run into each other. And it was always really this, this good connection. Uh, when we were both approaching our 50th birthday, <laughs> um, well, you're not 50 yet, are you? What are you, 40, 38? Wow. Huh? Hurting feelings, but 40, that's cool. What are you, 30? You're just looking at the, the wrinkles and the receding hairline. I see. That's fine. I'm just saying because I, you don't I know what it's like. I am not actually 40 yet. No. You're not even yeah. 40. No, no. So you'll see. When you get to 50, you start thinking um, about things maybe a little bit differently, about uh, the career you've had and where you want to go. And... Uh, you know, as much as I love Drew and love Montrachet, uh, we had some tough times there after 9-11. The neighborhood uh, really suffered tremendously. Uh, the restaurant suffered, and I needed a new challenge. And uh, I, Danielle Boulou offered this challenge, and that was to start a wine bar, Bar Boulou, 
because at the time there was Danielle, there was Cafe Boulou, um, and you know, to to start this wine bar with the Burgundy and Rhone concept really stimulated me, and it was an opportunity to work with Danielle. So it was it was very difficult in a way because they didn't have the position of wine director. They didn't really. Uh, weren't able to define what that role was, nor was I able to. I had never worked in a restaurant group outside of Drew's, and that was Tribeca Grill and Noble, and all in Tribeca, small operations. Uh, and each restaurant had its own sommelier with David Gordon over at Tribeca Grill. And, you know, so this was uptown, this was big league, this was a serious commitment. And uh, how do we navigate this? So it, it was difficult, and the sommeliers on on board. You were in, uh, on the team at Danielle at the time. Yeah, I was really before. lucky to taste some stuff with you. You 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 had gone over to Cafe Boulot after. Yeah, I was. I, I had been. I'd actually worked for him for a while, but when you came on, well, you so were in Florida. I was in Florida. Right, that's right. So, um, so it, it was fascinating because not only the uh, you know the pressure from very busy restaurants but also the opportunity to work with a lot of wine, a lot of different wine, whole team of sommeliers, and uh, work with a chef who is, you know, one of the greatest chefs on the planet. Mm-hmm. And what, what really attracted me also in working with him and that group is this is a chef who cares about wine. Quite a bit. He cares more about wine than any other chef I've ever worked with. Um, not only does he care about it, but he, he's pretty good taster and uh he really loves he loves to connect with winemakers and that whole culture also uh and and some of the greatest moments in working with Danielle are when there's a wine event or a wine dinner or a customer coming in wants to talk about wine where Danielle will bring his team of chefs in and we'll sit in the office and talk we'll just talk about the wine first and well what kind of a dish you know it's like this real jamming session that is fascinating and it's like the most exciting uh moment when we just talk about spices and ingredients and seasonal ingredients and you know how can we make the dish to work with the wine so uh, i mean that's that's extraordinary and how do you think uh those sellers and programs have changed since you've been there it's been about eight years now so (laughs) what 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 stands out as a legacy or uh, something you're particularly proud of well you know i guess the um you know, the the Burgundy, my passion for Burgundy is infectious. And it, it's not just because of me. It's because, uh, you know, these sommeliers have uh, fallen in love with Burgundy on their own. But uh, also with my support, they've really developed the Burgundy programs at the restaurant. Danielle started as uh, an all, a really important Bordeaux wine list. And um, yeah, we sell a lot of Bordeaux at Danielle. It's a very important category. But right now, uh, Raj Vedia, the head sommelier there, who's one of the greatest sommeliers in the country, who's like a, a real presence in the restaurant, a real presence in the community, um, has uh, put together, I think, the best burgundy list in the country at this point. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And I've been helpful in some degrees in putting together verticals of some wines or through buying at auction, which you can do now, or private collections and such. But uh, so it's really, it's really shifted in that direction. But you know, I think it's 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 also shifted along with the tastes of the consumer. <coughs> People like Burgundy. Um, with the uh, 
with the, with the wine list at other restaurants, whether it be DB Bistro or certainly Michael Madrigal over at Barbalou and Boulou Sud, where the theme was always set up as Rhone and uh, Burgundy. I mean, there's a guy I met in Burgundy, wow, I don't know what year, uh, at Domaine de Lorlo, uh, 1995 maybe, or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and he hadn't worked in a restaurant before, but we stayed in touch and I followed him and he came back and worked for Vov Clicquot for a while as a salesperson, but wanted to get into the restaurant business. And so I helped get him on board. And so he's been a major con- contributor to the program and the energy at the wine program up there. You know, I think that the, the greatest impact that I've had is being able to hire people who are passionate, having the uh, maybe the gut instinct to hire people who I think are really going to take their passion and develop it and be able to communicate it to the, to the, the, the clientele at the restaurant. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's been fascinating for me to be able to interview and work with so many sommeliers because I'm not working on the floor anymore. I spend time at the restaurants, uh, you know, seeing a guest, seeing the chef, seeing the team of sommeliers, but I'm not working the service. But hiring the sommeliers has been really fascinating. The diversity in the people who uh, apply for the position, some of them just have the mentality, well, I'm in a program to become a master sommelier. I'm sitting, I'm studying, I'm going through the, you know, the course. Other people say, I love wine. You know, and it's 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 difficult because they have to have knowledge. Um, but what's most important to me is the answer they give me when I say, "What was the experience that got you interested in wine? What turned you on to it?" You know, and if they can say that it was, I don't know, meeting a Henri Jaillet. Or if it was meeting a, a bottle of wine they tasted, somebody had introduced them to and just opened their eyes and their palate, got them excited, then uh, I like that answer. I like that answer more than being able to just name all the appellations of the Loire Valley. Because you have to be able to communicate an enthusiasm and tell a story about a wine. That's going to get the customer to follow you. Has it been, uh, I mean, you're in somewhat of a unique position that you've seen some people work with you go on to really interesting, exciting careers in their own right. I mean, what's it been like to watch Tim Kopeck or Bernie Soon or some of the other people that work with you at Montreche or Danielle and then move along? What? Well, that's, <laughs> I was thinking about that coming up here. And, uh, you know, David Bowler, I had lunch with David Bowler the other day. And uh, he had worked for Michael Skernick. He'd worked for me for five years with my import company. And now he's got one of the great import companies of New York, distribution company. Really, really great. And we had lunch and I wrote him afterwards and thanked him. Of course, you know, I made sure he picked up the check, right? Yeah, so yeah. I had to thank him. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just wanted to comment to him that, um, you know, it's been such a, a pleasure watching him uh, de- develop his own business and be so successful at it. It's incredibly rewarding for me to see Tim Kopeck, who worked with me at Morrissey for nine years, to become you know this very important authority and success in in his career. And uh, you know it was such a joy working with Tim and over over those years. And that was a guy who really understood the the joy of wine. 
it wasn't about just talking about this, the soil content and the appellations and the vinification, the type of wood and all that stuff might be important, but who cares if you can't get excited about it? So seeing him and Bernie Sun run a program and uh, then Patrick Capiello, who was part of our group and uh, David Gordon. And, you know, it's like this, this like a lot of people who have gone on and developed their career and uh, they've only done it because they had the drive to begin with. And the guys and the women that, that I'm, I'm hiring and talking to today, if I believe that if I can provide a platform and open a door to them, they have to take it and run with it. Nobody can do anything for them. They have to run with it. And it's great to have that platform and have that opportunity. And it's nothing more rewarding to some, to see, than to see somebody take that opportunity. This guy, Eduardo Porto Carrera. Yeah. Was uh, I hired him as a, as a sommelier at uh, Bar Blue with, really nice with guy. Michael, great guy, and uh, he's now the head head uh, sommelier down at DBGB. And uh, I just knew it, you know, and the excitement he has in talking about the program and what he's going to do and where he's going to go with it and what he'd like to do and you know his knowledge. You know, these guys have much greater knowledge of the wine in the market today than I do. They're tasting all the time, more than I am. And, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I, and I'm getting in there and tasting as much as I can, but on a daily basis in service and after service and so on, you know, it's really rewarding to see that kind of uh, excitement. So, um, and, and we just put a guy who'd never been uh, head sommelier running a program before um, over at DB Bistro, Joe Camper. Again, guy really excited. I feel that my role is to try to uh, keep an eye on it, make sure that the wine that, that 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 they don't lose track of what's important. And what's important is keeping the wine list in balance for the for the client who goes to the restaurant for the balance on the wine list. So it's there's great value. You have to have great value, and value could be at a hundred dollars, could be two hundred dollars. But there has to be balance on the wine list so there's something for everyone, even if it means putting a big brand, recognizable Cabernet or Champagne on there. You want people to feel comfortable. You don't want to intimidate them. So I find that sometimes you have to kind of reel in the, uh, you know, the uh, esoteric uh, direction that a wine list can take. Um, but today you have an opportunity to explore that esoterica because... There's so much great wine being made in these obscure regions that weren't available when I started my career. You know, I mean, I, you're much younger than I am, of course, but... Um, Pushing 40. <laughs> when I started, there was no South African wine. Yeah. There was hardly any Argentine. Well, there probably was, but it was our, uh, oh. behind apartheid, right? Yes. So you, we, you, we weren't bringing it in. It wasn't in the market. Right. Exactly. Um, New Zealand, forget about it. Oregon, there were just a handful of growers. I mean, when you think back how you had four or five maybe starting in the early 70s with Dick Ponzi and, and, and David Lett and Adelsheim and these guys, you know, they're pioneers, true pioneers. Uh, we're going to be doing a wine dinner with Dick Ponzi and it's, it's important to remember these guys because they were taking the risk. They put their money where their mouth is and they did it. And... Um, so anyhow, I'm going off on a tangent here, but I think that uh, today, when you get into some of the small regions of Italy and France and Spain and, and, and the New World, 
I mean, how many Sicilian, fresh Sicilian wines were there available in the 80s? You know, I mean, it's pretty recent. No, it's amazing to change, especially in Sicily. It's, yeah. It's so, um, so it's really exciting to see this uh, young generation of sommeliers really explore and take off and put wines on the wine list that's going to, you know, excite people and encourage people to really uh, take this trip into the world of wine that is so, so fascinating. Let's circle back to Danielle for a second. I mean, uh, you know, I, I worked there, you worked there, we did dinners together and it was a pretty magical place. And I, I know I always felt like, a, you know, like uh, I was lucky to be in that dining room. And then there was a review recently that, that gave it three stars. I, I kind of got a chill when I read that review. I just wonder what you thought and what's the goal for the, the coming uh, future in relation to just the restaurant? Well, that review, boy, there was more than a chill went through my body and that of uh, the bodies of the people who work so hard at that restaurant. Um, you know, you, you can get me going here and uh, blood pressure is rising because I just don't think that uh, that's a, a place to make a social commentary, which seemed to be what was the most important part of that review, uh, being that, uh, you know, People, regulars get treated differently from others. I mean, that guy who wrote the review, I bet if he flies on an airplane more than other people, what does he say when he gets bumped up to first class or gets the bag of peanuts that he doesn't have to pay for? Does he say, oh, no, this isn't fair? I doubt it. Um, you know, we're going to get the star back. And that's Danielle's approach. His, he's hurt. His ego is hurt. Um, I think the most devastating... Uh, effect of that review is for the team that surrounds Danielle and works at that restaurant. Uh, I think that uh, people work extremely hard and Danielle work, nobody works harder than Danielle. Nobody has a bigger heart than Danielle and shares it and embraces his community, his immediate community and the large community at large. And these guys work, uh, you know, they, 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 they just give their blood to make it to, to please, to satisfy Danielle and to make him proud. And I think the hardest part of this review is they feel like they let him down. And uh, I don't think they did. I think they really gave their all. They do every day of the week. But to see the general manager, the executive chef, and the chef de cuisine, the disappointment on their face, their disappointment is not because they lost a star. Their disappointment is because they let down Danielle. And that's the most difficult thing for me. You know, I mean, I'm not there working uh, 12 hours a day like they are, but I see it. And I think it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's just, you know, infuriates me. And uh, I'm not afraid to say it. I just don't think it's fair. Well, I remember when I was on the team, actually, they got two stars. And we, uh, you know, you never want to say you've been hoping for more. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a great moment in the dining room. And I remember Daniel came in and he gave one, one of, the, I think, one of the greatest speeches I ever heard in in uh in restaurants you know in terms of inspiring the crew it was really kind of a down moment mm -hmm. in terms of the staff and he said you know reviewers come and go but uh you know what we've done here this is this is every day and forever you know and i i was just kind of curious because i wasn't around this time uh because i i have seen him come back from negative reviews before it happened in florida it happened with the michelin where now he has three uh what the approach from Danielle has been. You talked a little bit about the staff, but I, I'm curious because I haven't seen him for a while. Um, yeah. Well, 
very much the same. You know, it's I I went up to Danielle the night that he was given those two stars in 1990. Remind me, when was that? Boy, it must have been uh, early 2000s. Must have been. It was after September 11th. So yeah, it was maybe like 2003, 2004. Yeah, maybe five, four, five. Something because like that. I, I was still working at Morache. I was I was still working at Morache, and I knew he was getting reviewed. And I remember bringing up a magnum of Dom Perignon to celebrate with him and the team that night. And I was on my way and I heard that it got two stars, not four. And there, what do I do? Turn around and go back? Not. I said, no, I'm going to go and support him in, you know, tough times too. And I remember going to see Danielle and he was amazing. He was like, uh, let's drink the Dom Perignon. We're going to work harder. And that was the same this time. He said, we're going to work harder. We're going we're gonna to prove it. We're going to get revenge. We're going to be the best. You know, he doesn't, he's, doesn't give up. There's no question in giving up. And um, he's a happy man. He just got married. He's got uh, opening new restaurants. He's got a fantastic team. Uh, this, is a, this is a disappointment, but, but that's it. And let's overcome. talk a, l- a little bit about the global scope. I mean, do you deal with the programs in other countries? <laughs> well, I mean, it's funny you ask right now. I'm in the middle of planning some uh, wine dinners in China. Proves to be a little challenging. Uh, but uh, I'd be I, curious. I mean, what's that like? I mean, I'm just curiosity. What's it like to plan a wine dinner in China? Well, you know, I, I'm planning from a distance. I don't know the. I I, I I get access to the books, the distributors' books, and I see what's there, and it's amazing. You know, you get a lot. A lot is available. Um, and again, talking with the chef there, they always come to me and say, "What do you think?" And whether Danielle's hired people who know that this is important or Daniel has told them uh, they're all extremely respectful of the wine component, the wine element. So I'm always involved in these dinners or special events or promotions where, uh, you know, where before anything goes out uh, to in the mail or email blast, I get a chance to look at it, make corrections and comments and tweak here and there and make selections for, for these dinners. Uh, the day to day, of course I can't do. The key there is being able to hire people who are um, smart enough and uh, experienced enough to put together a good progr- program and know when to lean on me or others for support. And I think that that's, that's a real key uh, with these other markets is to take the ego out of it and say, well, Daniel has experience or relationships here. Maybe he can help. And that's where I like to get involved is make an introduction, make su- make uh, get a, a an extra allocation, uh, make suggestions on on the list to keep it in balance. Uh, but the but the sommelier has to have the uh, wherewithal to maintain and order and and be a business person because they have to keep a, a good inventory and a good program going. But I mean, let's talk about this. So you helped build uh, in many ways the Burgundy market in New York, right? So we know that, and you've done an amazing job. Uh, introducing what was a Bordeaux market into the Burgundy world. Uh, seems like the same change is happening in China right now. Seems like in Hong Kong, people are moving from uh, Bordeaux at auction to Burgundy and Rhone at auction, at least if the auction numbers are any indication and the allocation's getting scarce, there's any, indi- allocate, any indication. Uh, Danielle has a restaurant in Beijing uh, and in Singapore, I believe. Singapore, yeah. So uh, 
from from the from here from your vantage point of having done it in New York, what, what's it seem like to you over there? Well, it seems uh, Burgundy is getting uh, more popular. They still like Bordeaux. Uh, red wine overall is very important. They like Italian wine. Um, uh, the, you know, Burgundy has limitations. There just isn't any wine. And you're also especially going, lately. Especially lately, you're going through well, 10, 11, 12, and now it looks like 13 is going to be a pretty small crop. Uh, so there's not a lot of wine, there's huge demand, and there's only so much they can do. So, um, yes, the interest is there. The auction market, the interest is is great. Uh, but in the restaurants, it's it can't dominate a program. Uh, Bordeaux is still extremely important. Oh. And, and, and if I could just add about Bordeaux, um, I don't know if you were going to go there, but I before I... Forget, I'd, I'd like to talk about Bordeaux a little bit because, um, and this ties in a little bit to what I was saying about, uh, you know, the opportunity to buy obscure appellations from all over the world right now. So I think that there's a tendency to forget some of the, uh, you know, the established appellations uh, like Burgundy, like Bordeaux, and uh, that Bordeaux uh, is not just about the classified grows and the rarefied world of Bordeaux where bottles could be selling for $1,000 a bottle before it's even released or even put in the bottle, right? But uh, Bordeaux, I think, is uh, an area that's, um, you know, been proven to be one of the most uh, important growing regions of France and producing some of the greatest wines in France. And uh, I think it's important for sommeliers not to forget this. And just because there's cool wine in the Jura, cool wine in certain appellations of the Loire and and, uh, all over the place, don't forget don't forget why Bordeaux has, you know, is getting thousand dollars a bottle. I mean, oh. no doubt. I mean, I opened up an eighty-five uh, a La Mission Aubryon the other day, and I said, "Boy, you know, tastes good to me." You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it does. there's a reason why these wines are good. Uh, but I mean, at the same time, I sometimes wonder if it uh, if it might not just be the price, but also the food. I feel like uh, as the move to Asian flavors and more Italian dishes, using more acidity in the dishes, I wonder if Merlot-based wines, Cabernet-based wines are really as flexible as some of the other options with what people often eat in New York. You know, that's what I wonder. That's true, but uh, no, the cuisine is maybe a little bit lighter now, and yeah, but uh, I don't know. There's certainly steak on every menu, and people are eating it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, and it's also true that when I came up, at least that was that's who had big sellers, and it was mostly full of Bordeaux and and Rhone was steakhouses. Yeah, and, you know, so as long as people eat steak, I mean, that's it's definitely true that there'll be probably some Bordeaux that'll taste good with that. But you know, it just seems like every time you look around, there's a new guy with pork buns or mapu tofu, and I I I, I just think that sometimes those lighter, cooler wines you know, higher acid wines. And I think that's part of the rise of Burgundy. And it can go well with that. And less sauces and things like that, you know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's no question about it. And people are, you know, oriented towards more casual dining. And uh, Bordeaux has an element of, I don't maybe refinement or a little bit stiff. And that's just the, uh, maybe the image of it also. But there are a lot, if you go into some of the regions, uh, some of the satellite appellations, you get out there, and see these young people in Bordeaux and some of them making natural wine and, you know, carrying on family traditions and operating chateau with, uh, you know, six, seven hectares and really in the tradition of small growers. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's Cabernet based or Merlot, Cabernet Franc, a lot of Cabernet Franc on the right bank. Um, that um, they're trying to make fresher wines and less oak and less extracted and less in that modern style. I think that the pendulum is swinging back a little bit from that uh, may, maybe uh, microoxygenation and new oak and polished creamy style. And you get some more, you know, lower alcohol. Remember Bordeaux, historically, be, very yeah. like 12 and a half, 12, 12 but, and a half percent alcohol. But glo- global warming has. Yeah, I mean, it's rare you're going to get a 12 and a half percent Bordeaux now. I mean, if you could, it'd be great. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but I mean, let's talk a little bit about what's really so many people uh, know you for, which is your, your knowledge of Burgundy uh, and some of the characters that were there. I mean, you talked a bit about the newer generation and you know, I've heard you say before that you were lucky to come on at a time when there was young guys making that generational change and you were able to really forge some, some relationships that have been really long term. But I mean, some of the people that uh, maybe have passed away that younger people may never get a chance to meet, like Henri Jaillet, like Mr. Angel. I mean, what were these people like, Jacques says? Well, uh, Jacques was in town. I had drinks with him the other night, and he's, I mean... I yeah, didn't mean why he was dead. No, 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 we understand. That a lot of people may not meet him anymore. <laughs> he's far from, yeah. yeah, he's very much alive and uh, super guy. Uh, of course, he's passed the reins on to his children, Alec and Jeremy and Diana, Jeremy's wife, are really running the domain and uh, making fabulous wine. But uh, the, 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 uh, the older guys like Henri Jaillet and Angel, Angel was Henri Jaillet's professor in Dijon, um, and the old Ramonet, and you know, they were they were guys who hadn't gone to school. Who, well, Angel, okay, but um, you know, they just learned from their fathers and the tradition. This is the way it was done, and this is what we do. But then, but they had foresight. Like a guy like Henri Jaillet was a great viticulturalist, and he knew and how to look at the grapes and what to look for and when to pick. And you know, it was instinctive. Also, he wasn't uh, like going through the chemistry of it and saying, oh, there are the sugars here and the acids here and let's pick. He would uh, take grapes from different parts of the vineyard, crush them, taste the juice and say, it's good. Let's do it. You know, and um, meeting guys like that was so important for me because, you know, I think that wine has to tell a story. And when you see the personality behind the wine, it just adds another dimension to it. Unfortunately, most customers, most consumers can't do that. They don't know the personality. But if somebody can transmit that personality in some way, you know, by saying Henri Jaillet always had a smile on his face, taste this wine, you can see the smile. I mean, the wine is smiling. It's it's has, it's joyous. Um, and and uh, to to have been able to touch and see a part of that, uh, I think that I'm extremely fortunate. And I will forever be grateful to to Burgundy for allowing me into their cellars and allowing me to uh, experience that. And I try to take people to Burgundy. I know you're going to say, "Well, you never took me." I know I, this is like this I, like never, simmering thing between know. us, but <laughs> it's going to. I actually did manage to go without your help, so <laughs> it's worked out just fine. Anyway. Uh, somebody told yeah, me you were there. Yeah, yeah, I know. Huh? Yeah, same time as you. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny well, how didn't, the, I didn't plan it that way. I, I didn't. It's yeah. weird how the world works out. Yeah. <laughs> I was there for two days. And somebody said, "What? Well, Levy was just yeah." Like, no, it was a good trip. It was my first time to a lot of um, places that are, you know, obviously very meaningful. So. Well, I'd like to hear about it sometime. 
But um, I would say I was very fortunate to be allowed into in, into Burgundy and into this this part of Burgundy that is now the doors are shutting a little bit because they don't have a lot of wine these days, and there are a lot of people who want to go. And I had to write somebody yesterday. This is not easy for me to do. Somebody I'd never met, but who had come to La Polay Grand Tasting. And said, you know, I'm going to Burgundy in October. Can you make some appointments for me? I'd really appreciate some introductions. The winemakers I like are... Yeah, DRC. Uh, DRC, Rousseau, Rumier. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, the, you know the list, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so I'm reading this list and say, oh, you know, I, I don't like saying no to people. Yeah. How do yeah, I yeah. say no? How do you right. find the words to say no right. so they don't write back and call you, you know, yeah, 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 names? Yeah. I went to your thing and didn't have, yeah. yeah. But how can you help everybody? Goes on, on, on. I can't. Yeah. And what I, I've made up a, a pact with the growers in Burgundy. I won't call them up asking for them to make an appointment with somebody. But if I am there, they say, well, if you want to bring along two or three people with you, yeah. fine. Yeah. That's the way to do it. Right. Because, you know, they can't, I can't just, you know, they'll be in the cellar all day long. Right. And they have other things. To they do have other too. things to do, and they don't have that much wine. And there are people who are actually quite famous who have been locked out of estates because they've abused their privileges of going. So. In terms of too much or bringing too many people, so yeah, that's and it's worth thinking about. <laughs> so I can't, you know, I don't do it. I mean, I'll take uh, people with me if if possible, but I can't uh, just make appointments. But but it also sounds like you were introduced to Burgundy on an intimate level, and you like to share it that way too. It sounds like it's just how you met it and how you like to pass it on. To yeah, me. it is. But you know, Bur uh, uh, yeah, Burgundy. But but Levy, I, I I think of all wine that way. I think that wine should be shared in a convivial way i really don't like the settings where you, know, you got a bunch of wine people and you're tasting a great wine and somebody immediately deflates you and says oh yeah but the bottle i had last night was better mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know the people i enjoy uh sharing great bottles with more than anyone or or people who have never had it before mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i was at um a restaurant calliope with my wife That's drinking a, a, a 1985 um uh, Tompier La Louf, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, a single, you know, cuvee. And 85 is the year we got married. And it was a special wine. Nice. And said, you know, Good we're going to enjoy it. And this guy at the table next to me looks at the bottle and, and young, like 28 years old, you know, around your age. Yeah. And says, uh, wow. You know, it just looks at the bottle. And I said, oh, are you familiar with this? Yeah. He said, well, yeah, you know, I, I spent a week there. Wow. And I met uh, Lulu, Lulu Perot, yeah, yeah. and, you know, and I spent a week there. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I was in law school and I took a week off and I was traveling around and I spent a week in the region, not at the domain. Mm -hmm. But they went there and they invited mm -hmm. him to lunch and it just like opened his eyes and got him all excited. That guy and his date, I poured two big glasses. I mean, yeah, I love yeah, sharing with yeah. people like that. Because they're never going to forget. It means something to them. Really means something to them. Did you get married to Sally the same year that Monashay opened, 85? Yeah, same year. That's a big year for you. Yeah, it was a big year, yeah. <laughs> well, it was a good year. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's always great to talk to you because I feel like I learned something about you know, a history that's important to wine drinkers everywhere uh, and that you were a big part of creating. So thank you very much for, for sharing some of that. Well, us. thanks for having me. Thanks, Daniel Jonas of the Dynex Group and also the La Palave. Thanks, Levy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. 
The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.